Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine, a place to learn from one another and to set a good example for any artificial intelligences growing up in our midst. Why program something when you can read stories to it instead? I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, computer engineer, comparative literature professor, and the author of Literary Theory for Robots, Dennis Yi Tennant. Technology is a type of cooperation with other people. Again, let's like think of simple technologies, like a dictionary. You know, it took humans like centuries to perfect the technology of a dictionary. Dennis will be sharing the hidden history of modern machine intelligence, which has more to do with medieval poetry and Russian folktales than anything being conjured by the boys in Silicon Valley. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Thanks for listening to Team Human today. We're going to shake things up a bit this month to see how it goes. Instead of doing a whole monologue and an interview on each show, we're going to try some standalone conversations and some standalone monologues. I sometimes get the feeling that People barely have time to let a monologue sink in that we're throwing listeners into a whole big conversation about something else. It's all good, and I think it worked when we were producing just one show every other week, but it might not be fully digestible every single week. So I will be with you all by myself for the next monologue, but for now, we're going to focus entirely on this very rich conversation I had with Dennis Yi Tenen, my new friend who teaches comparative literature at Columbia University and writes about technology. I think the easiest way to introduce him is to read to you the blurb I wrote for his new book, Literary Theory for Robots, How the Computer Learned to Write. Our artificial intelligences are less like computers we program than children who observe what we actually do and say in order to learn. Literary theory for robots shows we are entering an age where the way we read media is becoming less important than the way media reads us. This book matters because it serves as an alternative to the breathless utopian or apocalyptic hallucinations of the tech bros funding the AI revolution, instead offering a perspective on thinking machines grounded in history, literature, and lived human experience. Tenen shows that truly understanding the future of our digital augmentation depends not on more STEM, but on more liberal arts. This book will be remembered as the moment thinking people realized how to raise better robots. Read them good stories. 
It's my pleasure to share this conversation recorded in my office at Queens College last week. What I wanted to find out, because I, I saw your, your official sort of academic credentials in comparative literature, and I realized I don't really know what comparative literature is. I knew it was, it was like more no, than no, no, Nobody English. knows. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, comparative literature, it really, I think originally you had, you know, post-World War II, a bunch of people from Europe came to the United States. Yeah. And then they were like, we're not speaking English. We speak English with an accent. You know, we're not into this like Chaucer or whatever. We've never read that. But they had a lot of stuff to say about literature and about kind of global literature. Yeah. So I think that originally it was just that. It was, let's look beyond English. Let's look at, you know, comparative traditions. Right. And when they compared them, they were comparing more like French, German, and, and Norwegian. They weren't like, or were they comparing like African, uh, Malaysian, and everything? No, no, I, I think everything, yeah. So one of the earliest mysteries of comparative literature b back in the 19th century. So the term itself is, all, you know, has, uh, even in the 19th century, there was a journal of comparative literature in Russia in like 1855 or mm. something. But one of the mysteries was, how is it that certain folktales that are in the European tradition, so Finnish folktales, Russian folktales, they're similar to, to, for example, like Hopi indigenous tradition. And so they were like, this is impossible that these cultures, we don't have evidence of them actually meeting each other. Right. But yet they're telling stories that are kind of similar, that, you know, the plot is similar. There's like the character of a trickster is similar. So that was one of the things they tried to figure out. Is, is, and what can did they we... figure out? Like Chomsky, did they say it comes from the brain or something? Well, <laughs> no, 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 but kind of, yeah. So so that's where it's going, it's to, it's going towards Chomsky. Where they're like, this has to be either in the brain or it's in some Hegelian, you know, like spirit zeitgeist yeah. of the world that just sort of exists. Right. And what did they decide? Or they argue about it? Well, I guess. no, there, there was an <laughs> argument about it. Yeah. But so one going into the brain, that's one solution. That was Chomsky's solution. Yeah. Or going into some environmental. I mean, you could think that, hey, you know, people of the mountains, like, it doesn't matter where they are, they will end up talking about eagles or whatever it is. So there's various, yeah. uh, There's, but I, I, they didn't agree at the end. Right. I mean, because one of the answers is kind of spiritually confirming. You know, if it's this sort of Jungian unimind, or that the thing I love to believe, but I find it harder and harder the more science there is, is that consciousness precedes matter, that there's meaning before stuff, that consciousness is not this emergent phenomenon of complex matter. And so culture isn't either, that the culture and the mythology and all those pre-exist, and we sort of live to discover them, you know. Yeah, no, but I always think like, where does this consciousness exist? You know, like, does right. it sort of hover above us like a like a cloud, or is it more? You know, like people like Bakhtin in also in you know comparative literature tradition. This was like a Russian scholar, but he thought that you know language speaks itself. So like certain ideas just sort of work themselves out through culture to their logical conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so whenever you start with certain assumptions, they will sort of tend to work themselves out. But then again, you're thinking of language or culture as a thing that becomes conscious in some ways or, or has like a future and has a goal. And I know it's... Yeah. It's hard not to, though, if you're in it. I mean, that was my earliest work mm. was, you know, Media Virus. And the subtitle of Media Virus was Hidden Agendas in Popular Culture. And my idea was that because we had a new form of media, that these underlying things would start to express right, themselves right. in ways. But as if there was a cultural 
as if culture itself had an urge. Yeah. <laughs> well, culture is one of those words. Like we all agree there is a culture, but then as soon as you try to pinpoint, you know, it's like the average. Like the average exists, but you're like, where is that average? And you're like, well, it consists of all right. these very different things that we are kind of from far away look relatively flat, but as soon as you zoom in, it's a bunch of different stuff, actually. Right. You can never find Joe Q normal. He doesn't exist. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's culture. And, and you know, that's, by the way, like intelligence is like that, artificial, like there's a bunch of stuff that's theoretical that ends up being more or less an easy offhand way to say average of all this stuff. Right. Right. But it also turns in on itself. Like I was just talking with someone someone yesterday about, you know, how there's more information in your gut biome than there is in your own DNA. And what if human beings are just carriers oh, of I, these I, cultures? I, I think that all the time. I, like, I'm convinced <laughs> we are controlled by, by, like, the microbes are like, more, you know. I think so. <laughs> more sugar, more or less of exactly. this. Exactly. <laughs> more coffee. Go, right. Go fuck that one. <laughs> yeah. Go fuck that one because we want to mix our gut biome with that gut biome. You know, that those... That's culture. Literally, that's the culture, the living culture that, and we're just the petri dish on which that culture lives. And we have our own DNA. Sure, because we got to keep our little vehicles going. Right, right. And then we sort of, we ourselves float on top of this biome and going like, no, I'm, I make the decisions right. here. <laughs> it's a bullshit, right, yeah. that we don't. And then what if human consciousness is the, is the biome consciousness? What if that's where, you know, they say consciousness is in the gut, right? So... Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's the fancy word for it sometimes is emergent. So these right. are like emergent things that seem to be the net effect of a thousand little things or a million little things. And then so we say, okay, that's intelligence or consciousness. But then actually the gut is something that's contributing strongly to that right. cloud-like thing that floats above. Right. That is that that awareness thing. So <laughs> as a, as a, you know, as I read the the new book, which is really fun, people should get this, and it's short by definition. It's a short um, literary theory for robots. I wanted to give it to my favorite robots to read as well, but it feels like did you get into sort of digital humanities from lit crit or whatever it was from from comparative literature through this idea, this sort of opening idea in the book where you're explaining that that computers are universal processors, that it, these are not math machines, that the idea, and it came from, you know, like Byron's daughter or niece, you know, the Ada Lovelace, that they weren't thinking about it in the way sort of math people think about computers. They were thinking about them as ways of processing symbol systems of any kind. By the way, I don't really use the word digital humanities in the book. Right. And that's, you know, you get I'm, called a digital like, humanities person. I'm less fancy. Oh, so, good. Because so I, <laughs> I hate digital humanities. I like digital humanism, but it's like, if you're going to count the number of thous in Macbeth versus the number of vines in Hamlet with a machine, I just don't care. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but I have a weird personal history where even though my undergrad was incomplete, my grad was incomplete, and now I'm a professor of comparative literature, I always worked as a software engineer. Like, and like and since, you were a dropout. And I was a dropout. Which is great for people to know. You dropped out of college and... Dropped out of Michigan State. Yeah. And then I went to Oakland Community College, which is great, by the way. In uh, Oakland, California. No, no, Oakland, Michigan. Oh, wow. Yeah, Oakland Community College in Michigan, which is a great community college. Wow. And what did you learn there? 
Like um, computing at that point? No, I mean, it, I took a lot of classes that could later transfer. So, you know, like math and right. like that, that sort of stuff. But, and then I ended up at Michigan, University of Michigan. Yeah. But what was going to say? So throughout, I meant I was working with computers. So just even in high school, I was at the forefront of the desktop publishing revolution, if you remember in yeah. the 90s. So I worked for this doctor who was a cardiologist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And he would put out books for, for cardiologists, for specific, like a very specific subset of cardiology for stents. <laughs> yeah. And so he would have me go, like physically, he would subscribe to like hundreds of journals in cardiology. And I would go, and he would say, okay, if you see these two words mentioned anywhere, rip out the page. And then I would make stacks oh for God. him. And then we would go to whatever page maker or whatever it yeah. was. And, and he would create textbooks for physicians that were way faster they were published right. much faster than the old school textbooks. And so that was desktop publishing. And it seemed like this cool thing that's going to like change the way knowledge yeah. is being disseminated. So I worked like this from early on, desktop publishing. And I started designing web pages for cell phones, for like Nokia, oh, wow. you know, like 60, 60 pixels by 60 pixels. So, but point is, long story short, is that when I began thinking about texts and literature and all these sort of abstract things, for me, they're always anchored in, in just, you know, I had to look at, okay, how do I actually work with text? And then I found that there's all this stuff surrounding writing and literature and, you know, art that has to do with computers and the way they are and kind of trying to burrow through the device in some ways to find like, hey, well, what is a letter? What is a pixel? Right. Uh, and that's the way I came to digital humanities or media theory, whatever, all, all, all that was just through that personal lens, I guess. Right. And then when did you start? I mean, was that the first book, the one before uh, this? Th but the, the first book was called Plain Text. Uh, yeah. And Plain Text really tries to answer the question of like, what is a letter and a screen? And, right. and so, you know, like it's the closest possible reading where I'm like, I try to jump inside the screen and sort of see where, where that takes you in some really weird alien environments that are in our computers. Right. But I, I used to trip out on anti-aliasing. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, let's do it. Let's go. Let's go all the way. Well, because the purpose of anti-aliasing was to make letters look like smoother on yes. the screen, less jagged. But the way they do it is kind of by adding noise to the edge of the yes, thing, just yes. like blah. And then it looks crisper. So it's yes. like such a weird paradox that you add noise and it looks like a smoother line rather than a more jagged one. Right, yes. You know, similar, to in my first book, I have a whole chapter on the technology, what is it called, like true motion in TV. Yeah. So where, you know, like you watch a movie and it looks fake. You ever do that? Yeah. Uh, because all the, a lot of the new televisions, they insert computed frames to make things smoother they insert extra frames between the movement because cinematography is actually quite choppy and, and we associate the choppiness. So like the more digital thing seems to us like the more natural. 
and partly we've been acculturated to this like a certain yeah. look of cinema and then making it smoother has the effect of like why are they acting so badly why it is it so it look terrible not real. i know yeah. I, went, i hadn't didn't see one of those. my wife's uh, uh, brother has one of these you know 60 inch whatever uhd super duper tvs and they were watching um just leonardo dicaprio's great gatsby on there and it's you know that guy boss whatever does these mm. And there's a lot of camera motion and moving, and it's like the whole thing looks so not real. Yeah. I'm like, what is this animated? Is this what the hell? You know, I would be sitting in the bar, and I'll get up and I'll be like, excuse me, can I borrow your remote? I just have to turn off. Like this is bothering. <laughs> I'm not even watching this, but it's just bugging me so much that if I could change, <laughs> if I can turn this off, please. I know, and it's funny because so it's like it's the digital hyper real thing that happens. It's the hyper real, and it works for sports. And then again, as you were saying with the letters, there's all sorts of physiological reasons. The way our eyes work, where, you know, the people who make TVs, they're quite smart about yeah. like thinking about how far away you are from the television, how we perceive motion, why we perceive lateral motion differently from horizontal motion. It's, it's really fascinating. Right. Exactly. No, I remember, yeah. you know, you start watching the first swish pans, Star Trek on HDTV, all of a sudden it's like, oh, This doesn't look right anymore. You know, the same episode that I could have seen before yeah. HDTV. I was like, okay, there's a lot of things going on optically and, and, and uh, mentally that I wasn't aware of. But to this book, you kind of start on this idea of, of computers as universal systems working almost metaphorically. Mm. Well, let's start just like more simply. Like when we write, whether it's, you know, a book or whatever, just an email – There is a lot of tooling that surrounds that act of writing. Like there are a lot of tools and technologies that are just there. And I always thought like, that's weird that I have all sorts of ideas about what writing is and what authorship is and what literature mm -hmm. is. But then I don't know the history of a word processor. Like that's an under, we don't think about it. Or I don't know the history of like a spell corrector. And that's something that I'm using, you know, thousands of times per day. I'm using the built-in dictionary. Right. I'm using the synonyms. I mean, there's a dictionary on my shelf. So you start thinking of all the tools that are present in that moment of writing. And then to me, that was like right away, okay, I got to write about this because uh. the, this, the tooling is doing something interesting And of course, there was a moment a few years ago when ChatGPT started coming out where all of a sudden tooling became kind of magical almost to people. And they, yeah. they started talking about it in this like autonomous, like, oh, you know, the Clippy is alive and it's going to like it wants things right. and it's going to do stuff. <laughs> what does it want? <laughs> well, there's Kevin Kelly for you. You know, what does technology <laughs> what want? What does technology, yeah, what do algorithms want? So that's how I got to kind of the more metaphysical questions right. from there. Right. Well, it's where you got finally to, um, and I think we know the answer to the question, which is my favorite line on the book, can machines think or are you just trolling me? You know, they're just trolling you. They can't think, right? Well, so one of the points that I'm trying to make is to say that technology is a type of cooperation with other people. Again, let's like think of simple technologies like a dictionary. You know, it took humans like centuries to perfect the technology of a dictionary. And it took hundreds, thousands of people, probably like millions of hours to actually get to the point where you can easily look up a word really? in a it dictionary. Wasn't Mr. Webster sat down for right, a couple oh, yeah. of weeks, <laughs> right. just jotted down. Yeah. Hey, like, I got what it. <laughs> what does that mean? Um, right. But so what's interesting is you never think like when you look at a dictionary, you don't think like, wow, that dictionary is really smart. 
you don't think of the the book right. we don't make that kind of mistake even though it is really smart kind of because it, it it condenses all that thousand right. years of of literacy right, exactly it it's not just the smartness of knowing what all the words mean it's the smartness of the development of all those words by so many people and I've often thought you know today if we were going to develop language today everybody would want IP on the words that they've created and there'd right, be no right, way right. to speak <laughs> yeah yeah, Shakespeare would be like, stop, stop saying that. Right. But yeah, but I guess it is the confusing part here is that those folks are now, they're dead. They're, you know, the people who contributed to this effort, they're, most of them are gone. And, but yet they're able to help you. So you're, you're there just writing your essay and from far away, they're still present in some ways and they're, they're participating in whatever it is you are doing. And it's a collaborative effort, but it's stretched across time mm. and it's stretched across space, which is difficult to sort of conceptualize. Right. Right. And technology is the same. So when we're writing, I mean, this is the point I'm trying to make in this book. So we're, we're writing with whatever it is, ChatGPT, or even your regular grammar correction or spell correction in, you know, in your Gmail. So you have a group of engineers who have thought about, okay, how do people write? How do we help authors? And that group of engineers is relying on another group of, and they're using dictionaries and they're using grammar books. And all of those folks are present in this collaborative effort. Right. But it's so difficult to understand it. It's so kind of complex. Right, that, that say, it looks like, oh, this is my Google cursor yeah, is we, doing this, but yeah, it's not. We would say, yeah, we say, oh, the technology is smart. But no, it's not, you know, it's not the thing is smart. It's the fact that across time and space, there is a team of people present with you and they're helping you, you know, they're holding your hand a little bit. Right, but then there's a giant sort of Marxist argument to be made that here Google is exploiting or whoever the labor of all these unseen people, not to mention even all the unseen people that dug up the cobalt and the molybdenum to make the processors work that are right, doing all right. that. But, you know, it's so this, all humans. I have a good story for you is that I was last spring, I was in Kyrgyzstan, in mm -hmm. Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, somehow I was giving a talk on AI in Kyrgyzstan. And, you know, Kyrgyzstan is very advanced in terms of education and mm. mathematics or computer science, very advanced. So the students kind of are on high level able right. to reason. And when I was taking questions from the students, they were like, I, I'm, you know, Americans are so obsessed with AI because you're asking these questions like who is going to write the essays and is it going to change education? And they're like, everybody who goes to school here, if they're rich, they just hire somebody to do their homework. There, so it's, right. it's already like that's what uh, I always argue. All the all the ChatGPT does is level the playing field for people who already outsourced their work to others. Yeah, yeah. and the fact that my point is like outsourcing work to others has been going on again for centuries. The Greeks wrote like whatever Cicero wrote was done with like slave labor. He had all these attendants. Hey, go pick up this book. Re, you know, look up really? a citation. Yeah, it was so it was like Andy Warhol's factory or something. Kind of, yeah. So, so really, we write most of creative work happens in collaboration. It's just for some, you know. We pretend that we, it's we not. We pretend though. that it's not, yeah. Well, and that so, was my idea, my story. I was just reading, Tyson Yunkaporta has a new book he's writing. He's an indigenous uh, scholar. And he was trying to explain that every story, it's not your story. Every story is a collaboration, whether you're, you're telling it yourself or in a group of people. It's just so hard to, it's hard to remember. So because of the invisibility of the other people, then we project humanity exactly. onto the machine. Yes, exactly. I think that's that's a good way to put it. And also it's it's a weird, I think it's a 19th century sort of hubris, you know, kind of romantic hubris to imagine this like hero, 
singular heroes who, you know, individually invent stuff or individually produce stuff, where really the baseline of human culture production is collaborative. Right, right. But, you know, our whole subject-object, even our linguistic structure, gives responsibility to some individual. Right. Well, especially, you know, English is SVO, subject-verb-object. English really likes to have the subject who is doing the stuff has to be in front of the sentence. And then there's a verb, and then there's the object that is passive, and that is like, doesn't... And it's clear, it forces you to to speak more clearly and to think about agency, like who's actually responsible for this. But it also makes it sound like agency is singular. Right. You know, I invented this or whatever it is, Bill Gates, or, you know, we, we love these yeah. stories of heroes that singularly invent things. I know, but then when we apply it to AI, I remember um, Luke did a, a panel where it was me and a bunch of people at Watson and they had representatives at Watson, IBM's first, you know, AI or one of their AIs. And they kept saying, well, Watson is 70% certain. And I'm like, who's Watson (laughs) to be certain? Who's certain? The machine is not certain. Oh, well, you know, it's just our way of saying it. It's it's not just a way of saying it. You're framing all of our perception about these things by saying the AI did this or the AI thinks this. Right, right. Well, there's this like metaphysical game we're playing, philosophical game where like, oh, who is really driving the car? What does the self-driving car want? What does ChatGPT want? But they do think there are moments. So when a self-driving car gets into an accident, then we are forced to look at agency and say, okay, who is actually responsible? So, okay, there was the team of engineers writing the code for, you know, whatever, lane recognition, did they make a mistake? Or was it the driver that was was supposed to pay a little bit of attention, but they didn't? Or was it the city planner who, you know, there was supposed to be a double line here, but it was right. not maintained? And when you look at it, you'll have this very complicated mess of responsibility, which, you know, the court might actually decide, like, okay, it's 20% the driver's fault, and it's the company's on the hook for whatever, Tesla right. or whoever is on the hook for another 20% and the city planner. So that's how agencies complicated yeah. in the real world. But when we are busy, we just say, okay, the car, it's right. the car. But it's not <laughs> fundamentally different than when the automobile company, you know, of the 1980s calculates there's a 0.01% chance the gas tank will explode if this car is hit from this angle. Yeah. And the amount of deaths or lawsuits we're going to get doesn't equal the amount that it would cost us to repair it so fuck it right and they do that you know and then the ford pinto exploded and people died and then they sue it's a calculation that's made right right and by the way that's to your original question i didn't forget it that is the metaphor the metaphor is so somebody produces a technology that's kind of has this unintended side effect and then it's convenient to say oh we didn't know it's the technology did this but then it's important not to be metaphorical and to to kind of you know it's a kind of passive voice that we need to make active to say no actually you were responsible for putting this thing on the road you were responsible for you know whatever right. and really finding who is doing what to whom putting kind of the human part back, I think it makes it somewhat easier to think through like the ethical implications of right. this of But this there's like, you know, there's the guy, what's it, Justin uh, uh, Rosenstein or something, the guy who came up with the like button, who mm. now has, you know, a, a giant nonprofit trying to correct a lot of the ills of technology <laughs> and capitalism. Because he feels, oh my God, I didn't, I thought I was making a like button for people to give love to each other's stuff on Facebook. And look what happened, look what they, or the guy, Ethan Zuckerberg, who did the cookie. Uh, and he's right. like, oh, no, I didn't think. So 
they do realize they made the thing. And now we see little Sam Altman, the guy who started OpenAI, going to Congress right. or around the world saying, I want to be regulated. I don't know what I've done. I mean, to half of us, he's saying, regulate me. To the other half, he's saying, don't regulate me. Depends on the audience. Right. But uh, I wonder, are these guys, well, what are they missing? The Musks and the, the people who are making the AI who are simultaneously more afraid of it than any of us. Well, I mean, look, I, the, the academic answer and the easy answer yeah. for me is history. Is, is when, so when you start teasing this stuff apart, so, so it's easy to talk about agency or consciousness, like, you know, the, is it alive or like these abstract questions. But once you make them concrete and you ask, okay, let's, let's look at grammar correction. You know, and you start looking historically. Okay, in the 90s, this was happening. In the 1890s, this other thing was happening. And then, you know, so you can start looking at, once you become more specific, I think you see technology becomes a more interesting story and then maybe slightly less mystical and mythical. Right. But also it becomes full of humans and full of uh, tragedy and full of characters and full of... So I think that's, that's for me, that's, that's kind right. of the easy answer but it to become, that. And it becomes easier to see. Like the, the first computer example in my life was um, I used to work at night. I was word processing because yeah. that's what we all did. It was got $30, $40 an hour for using, you know, WordStar at law firms at night listening to yeah, yeah. depositions. And you just sat there and typed. And I would leave at like five or six in the morning when the receptionist for the law firm was coming in, beautiful young woman who I was slowly trying to work up the courage to ask out on a date. And then one day she didn't come in and they told me, oh, she's been replaced by, we have an automatic answering system. And of course I hated automatic answering systems after that, partly because I lost my chance with the beautiful receptionist, but also the more you think about it, the automatic receptionist saves money for that company in the short term but externalize costs to everyone who calls into the company and can't get as quickly to what they want. They've got to sit there doing menus. So then every other company has to get an automatic answering right, thing right. to external. But so now everybody's spending more time and more money to have a technology do it instead of a person, but you can't get out of it. And then we look at it and say, oh, well, you know, the AI took my job or the AI. It's like, no, the AI did not take your job. Yeah. A business, a stupid business model took your job. Right, right. And that's another another point I make in the book is to say that whatever goes by the name of AI is really a type of labor. So, yes. so it's always implicated with labor politics. So you have, you know, another good example is like, like spam filtering or filtering for violent images on Facebook or something. And it's supposed to be this like automated thing. But then if you actually, and, and there are people who study this and that kind of work often gets outsourced to places like Moldova, where I'm from, or places like South Asia, where there are people watching, you know, porn and watching incredibly violent images. And they're, yes, they're using augmented, they're using some technology to like help them weed this out, but it's still an Im immense human labor that goes into it and it kind of gets hidden from us so the end of the day we're like oh okay there's a filter it's an ai yeah. filter that sort of is making the space more safe but then the the actual effort expanded and the actual sort of trauma that that this effort inflicts on people gets hidden because labor politics are often like that it's always hidden. Yeah. So, you know, I used to do this little monologue about the Amazon made for me, this t-shirt making thing, and you take a picture of yourself and Amazon makes the t-shirt automatically and it shows up. Right. It's like, they're still 
slave people getting the cotton and the rare earth metals. It's not labor free. It's just Jeff Bezos is really good at hiding the labor from you more effectively than it used to be. So right, it's a different right. kind of sweatshop. Yeah. But uh, yeah. No, and you know, and I was thinking that's that's also how I begin the book is to say that, you know, in the 19th century, we know the story of industri industrialization. So we know that, okay, people used to make clothes, whatever, by hand and like cool little workshops or whatever romantic notion we have. And then that kind of labor went to machines and cars were made on machines and clothes yeah. were. So there is industrialization. And I think there's people who don't work with their hands they thought that they're exempt from industrialization. And what we're finding now is that, well, okay, intellectual labor can be automated. And it's kind of a similar story. It's, it's a story of, you know, it's, it's, it's changing certain communities, it's changing real estate, yeah. it's changing where that labor happens, it cheapens, certain labor yeah. becomes cheap, certain labor gets outsourced. And still, if I, as a university professor, could have what my high school teachers had, a simple course book, you know, a student calendar where I could write the grades in and wasn't spending, I spend more time <laughs> nursing these giant computer systems for each student and their thing. It's a nightmare. But as an aside, so my family's from Moldavia. I mean, do you still go back at all? Very rarely. I mean, you know, it's a, it's, it's the poorest country in Europe. I, I didn't know that, but that's, yeah. yeah no, it's, they were it's, Kishinev, uh, yes. pogroms at Kishinev. They, yeah, my great grandfather yeah. was killed the first the first wow, night. Yeah. I mean, but um, I've never, I was going to say, I want to go back, but um, you could take you know, me. I'll go a, with it's you. A, it's a, <laughs> let's go. I mean, it's a difficult region to travel just because it's so poor. So you really feel that, you really? know, that like rift between like your financial realities and just, so it's kind of heartbreaking like, a little it's bit. It's not like Ukraine where there's actual like cities and industry and. No, it's a little like that. But Moldova's problem is that it has no, it's tiny. So it has like, there's not like great nature or there's, you know, they, they are completely cut off from the Black Sea. So there's not really much to do there outside of the, I mean, the, the city is beautiful. It's a really yeah. green space, but that's also, it's, it's really in bad shape. So Are your parents still there? No, no, no. Yeah. Everybody's here. Yeah. I mean, I have more distant relatives, but yeah. in, in 91, there was like another wave of anti-Jewish sentiment. Right. And so most of the Jews left from Moldova in 91. So there were ones who stayed, I guess. Yeah, the, the ones that survived the yeah. pogroms in, in, in the early 20th centuries, yeah. century, they left in, in the 90s. Uh, well, yeah. welcome. It's <laughs> 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 brother. <laughs> so, wow, yeah. Oh my God. So there's so much I want to talk about. I don't want to go nuts with this because it's partly my, my fetish. But let's go to the, the what I think is the, the most important chapter in the book, Markov's Pushkin, where you show very elegantly and simply how if you looked at the letters in text just statistically, and said, okay, just put the most probable next letter here. You start getting stuff that looks a whole lot like English, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, it's so interesting to me. So I, I have a, you know, I teach in the English department, English and comparative literature, but, but I'm also in the data science institute. And so I have a lot of students who are training to be software engineers and computer scientists, and they all kind of know what the Markov chain is, but they rarely read the original paper. And uh, the original paper is on Pushkin. So Pushkin was one of the, you know, a, a prominent Russian language poet who really, um, he's kind of what, I guess what Shakespeare is, is, is to the English language. He kind of made modern Russian language. Mm -hmm. Like before Pushkin, the language sounds different and more archaic. So he was a really important figure. 
And I mean, it was insane. He did this paper where he is counting the probability of any letter to appear after any other letter. So, you know, like in English, if you have like the letter Z, right, like you will never, like K will never follow Z, right? right? That just never occurs. But like after Z, you may have an E because it's right. like zebra or whatever. Yeah. There are a bunch of words. So he did that. But of course, he's calculating this by hand and he can't calculate like everything ever published. He's just doing it on this one very long poem. Right. And so this paper came out and it was a side, of, you know, it was not like a, initially a very important paper because it had to do with the probability. And he himself went into like actuary science. Right. So, you know, like actuary is like uh, insurance, right? Probability right. of insurance. But then that idea that language can be generated just by pure brute force through these chains of probabilities, that began to gain traction. But it's not really until, you know, 21st century where computers got powerful enough where you can really calculate these probabilities over, like, quote unquote, right. everything ever written. But when you realize then that what large language models are doing is looking for the most statistically probable next word, you realize they're not answering questions at all. And um, this is why when you type in, at least when I do, chat into ChatGPT, I say, what weighs more, a pound of feathers or five pounds of lead? It will say, oh, of course they weigh the same. Because it's seen that that feathers and lead example yeah. as the same thing so many times that it says that they weigh the same, even though they obviously weigh different. So you go, my God, ChatGPT is so stupid. It doesn't know that five pounds is more than one pound. It doesn't know anything is the thing. It's just bringing up the most probable combination of words based on the prompt. Right. Well, knowing here is a kind of metaphor. It, so it seems it knows in some vague sense of the word, but in a way you're having a conversation with an average. And that's a really weird thing to do if you think about it. Like if you just polled, I mean, imagine having a conversation with like a, a thousand or a right. hundred thousand people and you're like, and for every, I'm just going to kind of average out the answer. Right. But that's not even as smart as a Google search box. I go four plus one equals It'll tell me five. It's not telling me five because that's the most common answer. It's right, putting right. a calculator function on well, there. Well, that's why I think that the whole notion of kind of like the idea of general intelligence and the fact that we can come up with like one generalizable universal intelligence, that like to me, that's a nonsensical idea because average, as, as you said, the average is not that smart. The average is actually like we normally, uh, smart is something that's exceptional. Smart is very contextualized to specific contexts and specific questions. Like incredible expertise lives not in the average. It lives like in narrow domains where like the people who do the most advanced science, they're saying stuff that has not really been encountered before. So the probabilistic right. way of doing stuff like that, you're not going to get to that area of like new... Which is the strange thing to me. So the, the tech bro mindset, on the one hand, favors statistics for everything, right? So it's the most probable outcomes, you know, because they want to make money and they're looking. But on the other hand, the culture of the tech bro is that they are the unique, creative, maverick individual. If you were doing everything by statistics, you wouldn't even friggin' exist. 
Right, right. Yes, yes. Invention, <laughs> invention by by statistics would be weird. Yeah, but you know, there is something cool. I I don't want to. There, there is probabilities as like the space of probabilities. It's it's a neat way of doing stuff. You know, it has. So it's beautiful. It's beautiful. So, for example, like the one thing that that works for me very well is that there was you know related to this probabilistic notion of language is that words mean in context. So the word sandwich often occurs next to like bread and right. ham. But it like rarely occurs to words like giraffe. I don't know. If you have just a bunch of examples, you may not know anything about sandwiches or giraffes or anything, but you know like, okay, it sort of is in that neighborhood of stuff. And really the definition of the word sandwich is that like a bunch of observed usages. And that's like a neat model of descriptive, right? I like that it doesn't make too many assumptions. And and so you're not going to argue about definitions. You just say, okay, the word means you know a bunch of examples of how people use it, and that changes. Yeah, but that means it's it's fascinating from a linguistic perspective. Yeah. But the more we rely on this kind of technology, I mean, it feels like statistical language is death. That, do you know what I mean? That it's death. It's like. Francis Bacon, who you also refer yes. to in the book, but it's Francis Bacon's Bacon style science of let's kill the butterfly, put a pin in it so we can study it. But it's nothing happens in statistical language models, nothing happens in vivo. Do you know, do you know what I mean? It's um, all based on what's happened before. Yes, I'm very middle ground in this. Like I'm not a, a cheerleader, but also I'm not. I, I, so it's it's death, but there's also, so look, the, the fact that language is dead. alive. Put it that way. It's yeah. dead. Language is alive. Language is alive, but, but that also means, you know, so descriptive statistics. So the fact that we are not looking at some like dictionary for definitions, but we're saying definitions exist in the way people use language. Like that's a very live idea. And, okay. Right. So that's cool. Well, could you imagine people using AI that way, though, instead of just to, well, maybe, to make up a weather report cheaper yeah. than the the weatherman does? It could be, yeah. And that's where, like, I'm guessing that you know, high level probability statistics people, I think they are alive to the possibility of a changing world. But I think kind right. of the generic version of statistics, like that, and the way statistics gets misused and, and mis, misapplied to various aspects of human life, that's the part where it gets like kind of scary. Right. Oh, and the other part is where they, I mean, as you said before, where you allow the metaphor of AI to obscure people's responsibility. The oh, human responsibility. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, where you allow, I mean, that's the kind of mysticism where all of a sudden it's not you who's doing stuff. It's like... The devil this, made me do it. The, yeah, yeah the, the machine made me do it or whatever Right, is, I mean, yeah. but we already, and we have a terrible history of that with capitalism. You know, it's people doing all this stuff because they believe that this system is nature rather than an obsolete uh, economic operating yeah, system. Yeah, and like the inevitability of progress. So, you know, like the machine, um, not machines, like cars. I mean, look at the kind of how we suffer from just cars and from how much of our city is giving away to automobiles and and the emissions are causing cancer. I mean, and huge. wars and everything. And wars. But then it's it's hard to, and so, you know, you're not going to say it's the car's fault, but then it's also, it's, it's millions of little decisions that have led to like the way the cities are now. This is Postman in Technopoly. Or, exactly, or, yeah. or a Mumford. Or Mumford with yeah. like, with, with, yeah. yeah, with, what's his name? Moses. Yeah. With Robert Moses and the roads. But yeah, I mean, that's the challenge is that not to make technology like this Leviathan, it's like a beast that has its own, but, but to start unpacking it. But the problem is it's like, it's, it's actually really difficult to do it because it involves so many 
actors and agents and competing interests and history and violence and all sorts of stuff like that. Right. And labor. All right. But then you end up with the well-meaning tech bros who are asking, how do we program morality into our machines? And I think you would argue that, that I mean, you said, or it's a quote, that machines cannot become moral agents. Right. I, I don't believe machines can have ethics. I think there's just like a logical impossibility. Yeah. It's, uh, ethics are human constraint placed onto machines. And it's not clear what, you know, obviously it's, you take two, three people, it's already difficult to produce an, an ethics, an agreement on what should be done. So what should be done, the, the machine, I don't think can possibly have an answer. So yeah, which is uh, the idea that it's going to self-regulate somehow. I mean, it's the old idea of like the invisible hand, right? right. The invisible hand, the market will self-regulate towards goals. Like, no, not, not, not really. really. <laughs> That's like empirically not true. <laughs> the, the market will regulate towards whatever random you know, crap that's going to be produced. Right. And it seems civilization does that for the most part as well. But assuming or accepting that maybe human beings can intervene morally into their own affairs, it's unreasonable to think that we're programming it into these things rather than reclaiming our responsibility over how we use these things. And it's a really hard argument for me to make. And I go, you know, and I talk to the humane tech guys and these guys, and they have such a programmer's mindset around it and such a an almost anti-spiritual view of humans, which I think hurts it also. Mm. The sort of, uh, I get in these arguments are used to uh, with like Richard Dawkins, where he called me a moralist for thinking that, that human beings have some innate ethical, you know, uh, right, I think right. we do. Yeah, well, we have goals and, and appetites and desires. And, you know, I studied with Elaine Scarry, who's my graduate advisor, and, and she wrote this great book, Body in Pain, which has nothing to do with technology, but it has to do with bodies in pain. And I think kind of our experience in the world as humans, we're grounded in our bodies and, and our appetites and pains. And that's what kind of ethics is some higher order approximation of that. But without death, without pain, without suffering, there can be no empathy or, you know, whatever, justice or that, that kind of stuff. And, and machines are just not a part of this world. I mean, it's like, what, you know, will this pen, will a pen or this cup or notebook have an ethics? Like, that's a they won't. funny proposition they won't. to me. They won't, but they will have biases, you know, which is what, what I was trying to, when, when I talked to yeah. Kevin Kelly about what does technology want, I was like, you don't really mean what does technology want. You mean, how does technology lean and they do. You know, guns don't kill people. People kill people, yes. But guns are more likely to kill people than pillows or coffee cups. Right, right. Well, then we're back to that mumford. I mean, like, the idea that, so like a pen assumes a certain shape of, of a hand. And it's able, healthy yeah. hand. It's or, an ableist hand, uh, yeah. The, yeah. You were saying how, like, the entrance to the building assumes that everybody can walk. And if there's yeah. stairs, it, 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 it means that the building is literally inaccessible to people who are in wheelchairs. So that's something to think through. I mean, this is like, it's very difficult to enact that kind of change. Like we have to lobby the city to change the building. You have to get funding from the university for, from the architects have to design this. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I know for sure is that I'm, I'm not going to blame the stairs, right? right. Like that's, the, that's the kind of mistake where you're, you're kind of displacing all that, the messiness and the responsibility. And you sort of forget that, okay, well that's, that was just a, a side effect of the political right. process. 
Right. But with, with AI, I mean, even more so than automobiles and other seemingly self-replicating technologies, you do have a uh, – it set in motion in a way that things weren't before. You know, the vacuum cleaner, you turn it off. The Roomba, it's going around the room, you know? Yes, but also for, for a time. So that magic persists for a time. So, you know, I start the book with the 14th – there's a 14th century – I guess he's a philosopher, historian, uh, Muslim historian, Ibn Khaldun is his name. And he encounters one of these like early text generators where it's a bunch of circles that you sort of yeah. spin and you calculate. And then he right away, it like seems magical to him. And he's like, so are you an ancient technology? Do you have like, what do you want? He has this like very modern yeah. conversation and it seems completely magical to him. And what I like about it also, he's like, maybe this is a parlor trick. Maybe there's nothing in there, but he's open. He's like, maybe it's God speaking to us. I don't know. But shortly after, when people understand how combinatorial composition works, so that right. you can rotate a circle and it produces random stuff, the magic is gone. And we no longer, you know, like that would be silly right now. You wouldn't have that conversation with like a chart. Right. Like a chart is no longer, so, you know, so technology always first thinks, looks yeah. to us magical, but then I think it quickly wears off. Yeah. And it becomes common. No, my dad, and he was an accountant back in the day, I was raised in the 60s, he had a slide rule. Yeah. And a slide rule worked a little bit like those circles of, of text where it's like, it was magic. He could take huge numbers and divide them with this thing and he'd write them down. I'm like, what is that? You know, and he knew how to use it. I don't think he could make one. Right, right, right. <laughs> use it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think we're already in this moment where, you know, ChatGPT got sort of, uh, th there was like maybe a couple months where it seemed like the most magical stuff. And I think as the more people are learning, they're going like, oh, okay, now I see how it works. It's actually, you know, people and I are was trying to tell people that don't be afraid. It's like, remember when Adobe Photoshop came and you thought, oh, it's going to replace all the artists. And then you would learn to see a, a flyer and you go, oh, that was done by Adobe Photoshop, you know, until the real artists came back and learned how to use it. And I think that'll happen also with this. You know, there's nothing more boring to me than a mid-journey picture. It's like, you had fun making it. You know, it's like your acid trip. Right, right, right. I don't right, really yeah. care. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, yeah, it's disconnected. It's, again, it's just like stuff disconnected from any, uh, from yeah. any bodies. Then you, you said towards the end of this book, and this is almost the, the happy part for me, intelligence rises above automation. Yeah, so that, right, so that's the idea that any new smart technology, once it's adopted widely, it becomes kind of the, the stupidest stuff. So like a dictionary is a good example. A dictionary is a really, really smart thing. It took us centuries to develop it. But then, you know, we now have like in the US something like 99% literacy. And nobody is kind of cheesed about a dictionary. Right. And, and nobody has this reverence. I mean, I think they should. I think like a dictionary is an amazing thing. But we lose, you right. know, intelligence is something once everybody has it, then using a dictionary becomes like a small stepping stone to whatever it Same is. Same like, as a microwave or a TV dinner. A TV dinner is magic. It's dinner, fucking yeah. magic. They get the turkey and the stuff and it's frozen. It's in there. It stays in a box for months. You take it out and beep, 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 beep. And it's. Right, right. So whatever becomes yeah. common, whatever, I mean, yeah. that's, that's also how labor works. Once right. everybody can do something, like, okay, now anybody can quickly write whatever, an email. Right. So, okay, you cannot make a living writing emails for other people. Like, you can't be a scribe because, like, that, right. that's been automated. But there is something, there's some subset of people that will rise above that, and then that will once again get eaten up into the ordinary, and then will, I mean, that's sort of how technology works, period.
Right. And so how that, language technology right. works. Exactly. So then if people are able to use AI to write their emails or to write blog posts or whatever, then still human intelligence will rise above that. So that skill set becomes commodified, but then... Oh, that's a nice way of putting it. Commodified. Yeah. So it becomes a commodity accessible to everyone. And importantly, it becomes cheap. So right. certain forms of, la- you know, again, we look historically like... There was a moment when just knowing stuff, like erudition, like raw erudition was like, you could make a career yeah. out of just like memorizing a bunch of stuff. But now th- what's the point? You, you, everybody has, you know, Google or search other search engines. And that's not, so that has become commodified. But what is considered intelligent now has shifted. Erudition right. is no longer a part of it. Now it's using that tool in a, in a cool way. Or there's still, we're still always bubbling up. It's right. like eff- intelligence is effervescent in that way. Like it always bubbles up. And that also means that, you know, we're building on top of this like giant pool of intelligence. Right. And if we do, and that's why I don't want to be afraid, you know, I'm more of a Norbert Wiener thinker when it comes to these technologies. I am because uh, I'm, I'm not doing them anymore, but I get interviewed about AI all the time and they always talk about the unemployment problem. And I'm like, I don't see unemployment as a problem. I see it as a solution because it's going to free our labor up to then yeah. rise up to percolate, as you would say, or yeah. effervescent to the next well, set of tasks. Right. Or unemployment is a problem aside from <laughs> intelligence. Like it's a problem not because of technology. It's a problem because uh, the whole our idea conditions that we, of labor are well, the whole, but, oh, no, It's also a problem because the, the whole idea that employployment is a prerequisite to food is dumb. Right. So, right, you know, so have right. to, we have to invent a product that people will buy so we can give you a job so we can justify letting you have that food over there. I mean, right, that's, right. Yeah. that's an ass backwardsness that in, in my hope of hopes that AI will help us see and solve if it really did replace enough labor. Well, yeah, I mean, as, as usual, automation should kind of get rid of some tedium. And the thing is, let's not pretend that like a lot of stuff about writing is, are, are not hugely tedious. It is. And I would think writing, I mean, this is terrible. People are going to hate me for saying it. I would think writing one of those Marvel movies is tedious, you know, and if a machine can do it, you know, if they really can, then what does that say about Marvel movies, right? What does that say about the formula? They're not going to write a a Vin Vendors movie, right? They're not going to write a Tarkovsky movie. Good the fuck luck with that AI, right? And so it should free us up to then go, oh, if machines can write all that, they sort of roller coaster ride of movies, although there were some clever ones, I have to admit. The one where they killed half the people, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> but but many of them do seem like they're they are they're just kind rides. Of, yeah. You know, so yes, a machine can do a ride and we can go watch those rides, but Yeah. Um, and, and you know, that's why I'm also I'm not worried about the profession of being a writer. You know, like I'm a writer, I make money with, with writing stuff and talking. And I'm not worried about Hollywood authors going yeah. by the wayside because but but what what it means to be an author will change. Just like Word processing has changed what it means to be an author, just like desktop publishing is the future, has changed what it means to be an author. And it will change once again. And there's plenty of space there for kind of for... There is. But as I used to say in the beginning of the blogger era, just because you can type does not mean you can write, right? Right, right, right. (laughs) Well, look at what... I mean, photography is a good example, right? Like there was a moment like digital cameras destabilized the professional photography market. But today, the professional photography is like booming. But now, okay, you may be launching drones. You may be are much like the, you know, I'm, I'm super impressed. Like 
the 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 level of editing that people do for like YouTube, mm. when you have an eye towards like cinema, you're like, man, people are setting up multiple shots. They're doing this like montages. They're doing pan shots. Yeah. 10, 20, 50 years ago, this was like avant-garde. There was like two, three people in I cinema know. who can do this. This is awesome. So it is awesome. And the film grammar that is just embedded in young people today. It's it's amazing. It's very cool. Yes, yeah. so it doesn't, but it's not like, so yes, it became easier to be a cinematographer. It became easier to be a photographer, but also it's not just enough to like click the shutter and be done with it. Like that's gone right. because everybody, you know, everybody can do that. I guess you're not pessimistic or optimistic, but you are kind of hopeful that this is all, certainly AI is not the big threat that people are saying. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I would say I'm not, I'm neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but, but I do think that certain things need to change. So, you know, one thing I'm trying to actually accomplish is I, I think this historical approach to thinking about AI, I, I think a conversation about technology and AI specifically, it cannot happen in this vacuum of like, let's just talk about, it's what we're saying. Let's talk about the digital. Let's talk about intelligence in general. It's, it's not enough. So once you have historical specificity, once you know the development of these technologies, then I think the conversation becomes much more concrete right. and interesting. And that should be a part of an engineer's education. Like that's, that's, think, the, that's but, the part I'm trying to well, yeah, get to. But that's why I was trying, you know, that's why I wrote this book, Life Inc. back when I was like, the history of money should be in the economists' education. Right. And it's not, they have no idea. They come into the story in progress. And so you accept its conditions as conditions of nature rather than, oh, no, no, a whole bunch of people made a whole lot of decisions that got us to this point. If you don't realize that you're not empowered to undo or change any of those choices. Exactly. Yeah, it's a fundamentally orthodox view to, to say that what we've inherited is just the way it is and it's natural and there's nothing that can be done about it. That's, I feel yeah, like that's, that's what it is. Someone goes that we were just talking about that last week. It's like as if someone goes to Google, opens the drawer, there's the loose leaf notebook that says yeah. how to do it and then you move on from there. Right, right, right. Progress. Yeah. 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 And uh, the accompanying kind of ide philosophy, ideology with this is like, oh, that's just, that's what technology wants. Right. Like it is, you know, it is natural. It's it's just, it's doing its own thing. And I mean, there are people who are pretty wild where they're like, and there's going, you know, it's the whole, like the singularity people who are like, and there's going to be a moment where it will like, whatever it is yeah. after, after atheists, singularity. Atheists talking about the emergent moment, it's, you know, it's so spiritual. Uh, it's spiritual. It's also, it's kind of horrific. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, there'll be a moment where like humans will transcend into, into some sort of like superhumans and, and that sort of wild metaphysical speculation I think is just outright dangerous. Yeah, yeah. And I get why people do it, but it's it's zombie apocalypse thinking. And the, part of the reason too is doing the history is really hard when it's so layered. So you could say, okay, if you're doing AI, you should really understand the history of, you know, C++ and whatever. Well, if you really want to know C++, and you're going to have to understand the machine language. If you're going to really understand machine language, you've got to understand chip architecture. And you can't right, know right. all this anymore. Yeah. Well, you can, but also, in a way, I'm fighting two battles at the same time. So for the engineers, I'm, I'm saying, let's, let's do history together. I think that's going to make you a better engineer. But then to my colleagues in the English department and all, in all literature department, you know, still the majority of research that happens in my departments is, is off singular authors. Uh, by singular authors. So even though mm. writing and 
authorship is this like super complicated technological thing, we still kind of pretend that it isn't. And even though most of the stuff is written by teams in collaboration with tools, we still kind of look at the tiny sliver of that thing and we say, that's literature. We are only interested in studying this stuff, but all the other stuff is junk. It's not worthy of our attention. And if we were to take it seriously as literary scholars, I think it would require a different kind of education. You have to, right? I think a literary scholar should know about the history of dictionaries and, and grammar right. checkers and desktop publishing and Markov chains and probabilities. Like it's, I think, a more expensive version of what literary scholarship can it be. It is, but it brings back the love of it. Like I remember a, um, a writing teacher of mine way back when was like, um, do you know how a pen works? Right, right. So beautiful. And I was like, I, I don't. This is what, this is, what's your favorite pen and why? Right, you, right, yeah. You, know? well, you have to be that, I mean, you have to be a nerd. You have to love the thing. You have to just love the thing that you're doing. I mean, that's why, I, also part of how, why, why I write the way I write is like, I love messing with my writing environment. Yeah. So, you know, like I love just sitting there and instead of being productive, I'm just like, ooh. <laughs> like, what, what does this function do? Like, that's, yeah. that's weird. Who thought of that? And you start playing with the tools and then you, you start realizing like how much they, of an effect they have. Oh, yeah. So, I remember when I discovered Zap Dingbats. It's the, the font oh, that the has font, just yeah. the symbols yeah. instead of letters. I'm like, I'm just going to write in Zap Dingbats and see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I write, okay, confession. I, I write in Vim uh-huh. in the command line. You know, like Vim is this ancient yeah. kind of Linuxy, Unixy thing. And you can really, you can really. And um, you run it on a Mac? Or on any any computer, oh, yeah. yeah, any computer. But I mean, point is, yeah. you, you take pride in your tools. I, I think that's how does the pen work? What is a letter? What is right? Like, what is you start asking questions like that? Right into that deep experiential nerdiness. I mean, which is another thing. I my peeve is this lack of competence in American business. The idea that they want to go meta on the actual business. You know that G uh, right, like, that right. when when GE decided we're not going to make washing machines, we're just going to lend money to people to buy washing machines. It's like so. Where's your culture? Where yeah, you can't be removed from the washing of clothes, right? Like if you're selling washing machines yeah. and you can't be removed from a pen if you're writing. I mean, I think that that comes back to the whole body. The body has to be present. It's like whatever the high, fancy high level bullshit philosophy yeah. that we, it's fun to do, but it touches the world through your body. Like there's no way right. out of it. We're not disembodied mind. You have to, you know, and re-putting the body back into that experience you know, in this case of writing, but in your example of washing machines, yeah. I think that's the real art. There is an art to washing machines. There is an art of of doing laundry, but it and and that's when the hand and the tactile feel of the clothes. Yeah. I mean, all that stuff. Like I love thinking about that stuff. Yeah, and for me, I mean, that was funnily enough. That was the original. For me, that was what digital meant. Was that the fingers, the digits, were coming back? You know, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, yeah, 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 digital, yeah, literally digital. No, that's true. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, that's a whole other like yeah. discrete, continuous, like to yeah. what extent. Yeah. In a way that, well, we, we went back to this, the true motion is that human experience is not continuous. Like we are kind of, we're spotty beings. So our perception, you know, <laughs> we see the world in like flashes and we, you we know, our memories. Yeah. It's a complete mess. And it's a spotty strobe effect kind of a thing. And that, that is digital. And so, you know, there was this whole in the age of telegraph, there was this huge argument about like, you know, is electricity continuous or is it uh, not continuous? And like, is human perception, is it all like a smooth, you know, no right. gaps kind of thing? And I'm definitely in the camp of gaps. 
Right. Like, you know. But analog records are still more, I guess, just because the, the, we still hear the gaps because they're not synced up with our gaps, you know, so smooth feels smooth to us because at least it's not adding any gaps. Right, right. No, but that's right. Like what we call analog is, you know, so like the actual, what we call analog also has its own sort of discreteness and also has its own. It's just the gaps that we feel nostalgia for or whatever. So, yeah. I like them better. Yeah, though you know it's so interesting to be like old enough where like tapes are coming back in. People are like, oh, <laughs> like the vinyl, yeah, like a kid. I got Taylor Swift on vinyl. It's like, yeah, ah. like have you have you like cut tape by with scissors and like you know I'm like that wasn't really fun. That it part. wasn't, but it was. <laughs> Maybe it, it was. was. Yeah. I liked. I liked making loops. I used to make original loops. Oh before. yeah, the looping. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my first record. It wasn't a record. The first musical kind of Western musical thing I've heard. I heard was uh, "Jesus Christ Superstar" by Uriah Heep. Uh-huh. My father had it on a reel to reel, and you could do that. You know, it's yeah. like exposed reel to reel. You can just move the tape and make make the noise, and you can you know break all the time yeah. you have to use tape. Yeah, I have I have good feelings about that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. It's it's fun to be both future futurized and nostalgic um, with you. But that's sort of the whole point that you know we move forward by retrieving the past, not forgetting it. Right, and I mean that's what experience is. Nostalgia is the, the, the our bodily experience. So you know we think of media and we think of like I mean not all of our stories. Like it's our parents, it's our families, it's our childhood. I mean that's what makes it personal. Mm, totally. And back to Kishinev. And our, back, our mutual, yeah, back to, yeah. Our mutual yeah, Jesus origin. Christ Superstar in Moldova. There you go. <laughs> well, we'll do, that's my next goal, is to do a production of Jesus Christ Superstar in, in Moldavian, I guess. Yeah, a Moldovan. So, you know, they, they, they renamed, uh, because after separating from the Soviet Union, the country changed its language to back to Moldovan, which is a Romance language. And the Russified spelling. So it's yeah. no longer Kishinev, it's Chisinau. Uh-huh. You know, they kind of re oh, wow. remoldavized the. Yeah, which is now becoming uh, it's a right. whole other conversation. Well, luckily, I never learned that language to begin with, so I don't have to relearn it. I can just start from scratch. Yeah, like, there you know. go. There you go. No, you'd be, I think any attention to the region. And also, I would love to travel. All right, I'm well. going to do it. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'll get us funding. I'll get us funding. Can we do like a rock opera? I think that's, that's I think the way it'd be to good. go. I could do, we'll just split up the parts of Superstar. That was my first record too, my first double album there. And uh, let's just split it up. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Thanks for being on Team Human. Well, thank you for inviting me. Cool. And thank you for being on Team Human. You can find out more about Dennis Yee Tenen by going to DennisTenen.com or just grab his book, Literary Theory for Robots. You can find more about Dennis and all of our guests by going to teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a supporting member of the team. Come to live events like our event with Mitch Horowitz at the end of this month. Uh, Check out Patreon for how to come to that. If you're a member, you come for free. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chapdelin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. (laughs) 